Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. Have you ever considered your superpower? If you had one gift to leave with humanity, what would that be? We believe that everyone possesses a superpower. This is your value proposition, your je ne sais quoi to help make a tangible difference in the world. Each week, our show explores these superpowers with tantalizing thought seeds germinating only from the power of collective thought. We invite you to join us for one hour each week and listen in as we dispense superpower knowledge from great people doing greater things. Okay, cool. So today on the podcast, welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. I'm excited to bring in our guest, Margie Feldhoon, and she is the co-owner of Interview Connections. And I met you actually the same place that I met Lisa was through Instagram. And I saw one of your posts because we were trying to figure out how to get more eyeballs on our podcast uh, once we actually got them live and up and recording, not all that shenanigans you just witnessed. And so I came across you and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm still in the space of trying to figure out how we can afford you because you're kind of a big deal. And our podcast is not a big deal, but we really like doing it. And we've had some of the most brilliant connections on the podcast. And we were talking, at least before you joined, we were talking about um, some of the podcasts that we've done and some of the people that we've had the pleasure of having on here and just some powerhouse people. And so the whole idea of, of what we're doing um, was so that we... a I like to talk if you couldn't tell, but I had a, I was podcasting for a couple of years, but it was just like nonsense, psychobabble, just me getting up there and talking. And so we, we decided to sort of retool it. So we had a purpose behind it. And but the purpose behind what we're doing is to give a platform to people who are doing ridiculously cool things around the planet that might not be heard and just to share that space with them. And that's how we kind of came across you. So um, we always ask everybody, what is your superpower and how can you gift that back to the planet? And that's sort of the central theme around it. But um, today I sort of already know your superpower, and but I want to hear it in your words and kind of dive into the space. You talked a little bit about on your onboarding forum about how grief and loss have empowered you to become an entrepreneur. Can you dive into a little bit about that? Because I think everybody has some sort of grief. Everybody has some sort of pain and misery, but not a lot of people are able to pivot that around and use that to capitalize on something. So it's two tell me a little bit about that journey, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, was... I started out in my career not really having a career. I really just kind of followed my heart and what I wanted to do. I love to travel. Um, I, I thought I would be a professional artist, a painter, um, and I loved like Latin. I had just been studying it for a really long time. So I graduated from college as a double major in studio art and Latin. Um, which my mom like loves to joke that I doubled my chances of being unemployed, which I guess technically I am. <laughs> um but so I was sort of lost when I got out of college because I hadn't done any internships. I wasn't interested in anything like marketing or anything that like made money. I just wanted to like translate Latin and like travel and do paintings. So when I got out of college, I couldn't get a job. Um, this was like 2011. Um, I couldn't get a job. I found one finally on Craigslist who would interview me <laughs> and it was like a job nobody wanted. It was door to door fundraising, um, for the environment. But I loved the idea of working for an environmental nonprofit and it's a high turnover job as I learned later. So it was like pretty easy to get. And the person who interviewed me to become a community organizer and a door to door fundraiser 
was my now business partner. So this is 2011. Um, So what happened kind of fast forwarding, I was traveling still kind of like lost trying to figure it out. Um, I moved to Taiwan for two years just because I wanted to live in Asia. Um, I was an English teacher, not because I ever wanted to be a teacher or really work with kids. Um, I'm just like, I have a lot of respect for people who do that. I, that's not my skill. Um, but I wanted to get paid to live in Asia. So I, I was a teacher, but I didn't really love teaching, but I loved travel. I had been in Asia for two years and was still kind of trying to figure it out. And then I got a call from my mom that my dad had killed himself and my world just fell apart. I mean, I was, I'm an only child. I was really, really close with both my parents. I had never been away from my parents as long as I had been being in Asia for two years. And uh, like is often the case, nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew he was suicidal. He had seemingly just like turned over a new leaf. Um, And so I was suddenly faced with the realization that I had to make a very sudden international move. My mom was really having a hard time dealing with everything, understandably. So I had to take on a lot of like planning the memorial and all that stuff that people forget, all that work you have to do instead of being able to just focus on grief because there's a lot of work involved in somebody dying and you have to make a lot of decisions even though you're not really in a mindset where you should be making decisions. Um, And I find that grief advice so funny that people are like, you know, don't make any big decisions when when you're grieving, but it's like you kind of are forced to. So I moved home and another important thing is that my dad was a hoarder. And I had decided before he died, like when I left for Taiwan, I was like, when I get home, I'm going to clean out this house. I'm just going to do it. And it's gigantic six bedroom house. They were not cooperative with that plan, my parents, but I was like, I'm going to do it. And I was like journaling every day about like manifesting it and this beautiful house and my vision of cleaning the house. And literally every day I'm writing, I'm talking about it. I was obsessed. And so my dad dies, which I'm like, well, that wasn't really the way I wanted this to work with the house clean. But I found myself at home. My dad was dead. We had the memorial. And then it was like, I guess it's time to clean this house. And it was this incredible project. It it felt like the hardest thing in the world to me. Like objectively, there's obviously harder things, but it was so overwhelming. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to find and hire the right people to help me. I had to figure all that out, but I did it. Five months, all day, every day, I did it. We finished it. The house looked beautiful. It was a total transformation. And While losing my dad and like cleaning the house, it wasn't like I magically woke up and was like this happy, successful person, but it did transform me. And it is the reason that I now have the life I have and the business I have and the success that I have. And I think the biggest thing was that it was the first time I really was forced to surrender. Like I all my resistance was gone because something happened that I never thought would happen. And my life fell apart. None of my old things would work. Losing my dad was like my worst fear come true. 
But what surprised me was there's so much power in that. And everybody, like you said, have has been through something, a loss. It could be a divorce. It could be a breakup. It could be losing your house. Everybody's been through something now because of 2020, even if you hadn't before. And I, I want to emphasize that there's so much power and success. And I don't mean that in a superficial way. I mean that in a sense of actually being fulfilled in what you're doing and also making money at it that is on the other side of these things that seem like the worst thing possible. And I really believe that's achievable for anyone. It's not that I'm just like special. That piece around the success and the surrender, are you getting at in terms of smaller, instead of, I think a lot of people when they're depressed or they're having pain or misery in their life, they, they don't see the other side of things. Yeah. But what I hear you saying is those small scalable victories is what ultimately brought you to the other side. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, definitely. And just having this goal, having this goal to do something. And I had never had that type of motivation before. Like if things had gotten too hard in the past, I would quit. And you can't get any momentum if you do that, which is why I didn't have any momentum and I didn't have any direction in my life. But when the stakes were so high that it was like cleaning the house was the only thing that I could think to do to take care of my remaining family, which was just my mom, it gave me the motivation to not quit every single day over things that went horrendously wrong that in the past I would have just been like, you know what, never mind. But I kept pushing through all those walls that would have made me give up before. And all the power that I now harness to grow a team of over 25 employees to scale the business to multiple seven figures, we're going to eight figures this year. You have to have that skill of pushing through every time you fail because things just go wrong like all the time when you're actually doing a lot of stuff. Was your failure, you kept you, you referenced that you kept quitting when things got tough. Was that just a situation of maturity or was that a combination of maturity and passion finally finding something that made you smile? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was both, but I think a lot of it was passion. I just didn't find it. And it felt, even though I wasn't, I mean, I was 26 when my dad died, but it felt late in the game to me because I was seeing peers who, you know, like had always wanted to be a doctor and they were like pursuing that, like they just had this vision. They knew what they wanted. And I didn't have that clear vision. I didn't know what I wanted and I didn't have a strong enough motivation to actually do something big. Cause I didn't, I couldn't even pick the thing I would want to do, you know? Yeah, I totally get that because I, I worked in a blase job for over 20 years in the corporate world, uninspired, unmotivated around it. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. And while I was successful at doing that blase job, I was not passionate about it. I had no desire to wake up in the morning. It was more like, you know, those commercials, I think it was Dunkin' Donuts used to run them back in the day. Time to make the donuts. Remember those commercials where the guy would mm -hmm. like trudge out of bed? And that's how I felt some mornings. And and now in the last and and and, and meanwhile on the side, I was running my photography business and just trying to get that up and running, but I didn't really understand how to bridge that gap between corporate time to make the donuts and really finding my superpower to do what I really wanted to do. So I love that story. Okay, so I'm still like 10 minutes back, stuck on the five months <laughs> to do that. Yeah. Did you have any, like, okay, so you said, you know, there's some hoarding issues, but I think we all frame them in a certain way. 
did you realize it was going to take you five months? I mean, five months was what I had. And I think that's a good, another good lesson that you really accomplish things in the timeline that you give yourself to do it because I was moving to Colorado actually. And there was a moving date scheduled because my partner at the time was going to school there. So that the, I think it would have taken a lot longer than five months if I hadn't been up against that deadline. Cause even working all day, every day, it was a lot to get done in five months. Um, I had a, like a 40 acre dumpster. I processed thousands of pounds of shredding. I mean, the volume was insane. And like, yes, hoarding can mean a lot of different things. Um, it was, there was a ton of stuff. There was a ton of stuff that had been like damaged and peed on by cats. So sorry to get so graphic, but there was like a lot of stuff that just needed to go in the dumpster. There was stuff that needed to be donated. I learned so much about how you even approach something like that, because it's like, some people might just go in and think they need to start like cleaning, like scrubbing, but really you need to get as much volume out as you possibly can and then sort what you have, figure out how many of each thing you have, get rid of more. Once you realize you have 18 extension cords, you can get rid of more, even though they're perfectly good. And then you're actually doing organizing and cleaning. So there's an, a really interesting structure to it. And I was lucky that I find after interviewing some people who were definitely duds, um, who were like borderline traumatic to even talk to, who were in this field. I finally found someone who was a hoarding specialist who was like a great person and she had a blog. So I was able to pay her to help us. And also when she wasn't with us, I was becoming an expert by reading her blog on how to approach different things and then implementing those as well. I feel like so much of this transfers over into the rest of your life that's followed because just reading your bio, you've done incredible things, like a team of 25, what your revenue is in a, such a short amount of time. And this last year when everyone is using 2020 as an excuse not to propel or, or accomplish anything, you're still growing in leaps and bounds. Thank you so much. I, that's such a nice thing to say. Yeah, I like I like to move fast. And I think part of that is I do have kind of a short attention span, which I think is another reason that I wasn't finding success early on, especially academically. I could perform well, but I would get really bored. Um, so going fast, I don't think it's for everyone. Like if that stresses you out, like building in a really slow and steady and intentional way is a really good thing. Um, and you want to build in an intentional way, no matter how fast you're going. But I do, I enjoy the speed. I think it's really fun and it keeps my brain like stimulated. <laughs> Margie, before we jump into the nuts and bolts of the podcasting business, do you mind if I ask what sort of stuff was your dad hoarding? I heard you say shredding papers and whatnot, but what does that even look like? Yeah, that's a good question because hoarding is a very general thing. And it was kind of great when there started being TV shows about it. In some ways it wasn't great because it, it like it's people's mental illness is not like entertaining, but for people who watched it in a compassionate way and learned from it, it was great. Um, so there was a few things going on. It wasn't like he had a specific thing. So first of all, he was a lawyer. So all the shredding was that he had a storage facility and an office that 
I became responsible for, like, because that's what happens when someone dies. And there's laws around how long you need to keep files. Even after the lawyer dies, you need to hold them for at least 10 years. So I had to go through all the files, find everything that was older than 10 years. And then obviously it needs to be properly shredded to protect people's privacy. So, and I'm not like a paralegal, like I figured all this stuff out. And then I was like, all right, well, how hard can this be? It, I borrowed my friend, like a family friend's van. I drove back and forth to my mom's house in the storage facility. I got all these disgusting moldy boxes. And then I started going through and finding everything that was older than 10 years. And I was using those like big giant paper leaf bags to, to as shred bags because there was just so much. So I'm like taking the paper clips and the staples off everything and putting them in the shred bag. And it ended up, I had like over a thousand pounds of shredding and then had to figure out who could take that high a volume of shredding, which apparently there's trucks that do that. And it's really cool. That's insane. <laughs> it was crazy. And then the other thing was, so my parents were not animal hoarders. I'm a huge animal lover and I take animals home. So this was my fault. So there was a lot of pets in the house and it wasn't animal hoarders level. There was like one dog and like, I think four or five cats, two of the cats were mine that they were just watching for me while I was away. And then I was taking them back and then they had like three. So not really animal hoarding levels, but the problem is if you're not on top of cleaning and organizing and there's just stuff everywhere, if your cats don't get along and they start marking, you have to catch those messes really fast. And in a situation where people aren't cleaning, they aren't going through their stuff, they aren't moving their stuff, it, no one was catching it and the cats wouldn't stop because once it smells like it, they keep going. So there was like a lot that needed to happen um, in terms of animal behavior and also in terms of like finding all of that, cleaning all of that. So what the house really looked like was it was like there was no clear surfaces to like sit or to put stuff down on. Um, and it was just stuff. It was just like random stuff. Like fans. It was like normal stuff, but it was like unorganized. So the rooms didn't have any themes. They were all just like storage rooms type of thing um, with all a mix of stuff. They weren't themed. So that's what it was like. The volume of stuff was really high. And, but then the animals added this like extra layer of like damage that needed to be like assessed and, and all of that. So I can't I Sorry, Sorry, I just need to ask you, what's your level of like minimalism to <laughs> right now after going through that right? did it change? Did it change? And you're like, that's such a good question. Me. Yeah. So, okay. And I think most people are like this. I'm really passionate about helping hoarders and I'm really passionate about I having a clean organized environment to me is one of the highest self-care. Like I think more important than like exercise. And I know like, and I like, I exercise. Like I know people who are into really health and fitness will hate hearing that, but truly the impact on your brain of having clear spaces and having your stuff organized and the way that you are caring for yourself by doing that or not caring for yourself by not doing that it, I'm really, really passionate about. So I, because I'm the type of person who gets really overwhelmed by like not having surfaces, it really makes me feel stifled. Like I can't put my stuff down everywhere. It starts to make me feel confused. I can't think right. I can't create. 
So I had like a very stressful childhood and like adolescence because I think most people are like that, but I'm like particularly like that. Um, the way I am now is I'm neat, but I'm not, um, I'm not like crazy neat, but I'm also not really messy. I like to have clean open spaces and I, it's more important to me than it probably is to the average person. There are certain things that I have a lot of, like I love clothes and shoes. So I have a lot of clothes and shoes, but I, there are open spaces like everywhere. Me. Sounds yeah. like somebody else I know. Oh yeah. my gosh. But there's a theme like my and they're with animal. each other. Yeah, exactly. But I'm really, I really care about having like clear spaces. Like all the sitting spaces are clear, like kitchen, like dining room tables. Like there just has to be clear, open space um but i luckily um my fiance she is like very organized because i love clean spaces but i hate actually cleaning but she loves to clean so we're like perfect and i love being with her because i know like things will never get to that like hoarded level because she is like she is a minimalist I'm that way with countertops or refrigerator handles. If I see a speck of dust on a countertop, I freak out. You don't understand. So I grew up with 11 brothers and sisters, Margie, and I tried wow. to explain it. And so it was like chaos zone. You talked about having the feng shui of a room. My house was the complete opposite <laughs> of feng shui. Yeah. And, and while I don't have, I'm sort of a minimalist and don't have a bazillion nice things, dirt on handles or dirt on countertops drives me bonkers. And I, I something from my child, it has to be. That's so interesting. I think yeah. you're right, though, with the chaos, like whether it's a bunch of people or a bunch of stuff, it, what it is, is the chaos. And I think that's what can be overwhelming and feel stifling. That's so interesting. Yeah. And loud noises as well. Dry, for whatever reason, they're very startling to me, like sudden me abrupt noises. Like when I hear them, I'm like, just start getting Need my Xanax pill, even though I don't do Xanax. <laughs> Maybe this hoarding business of yours, this clean piece, this is a new a business idea you can sell to the over-commercialized American TV system. I mean, I have thought of that, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Therapy like, for hoarders. Yeah, it's one of those things that like I love the idea and I would love someone else to deliver it um, because it. I, I don't really like monetizing causes that are really close to me. I would rather just donate money to them because like my analytical entrepreneur brain wants to maximize efficiency and profit and everything like that. And with something that's like a nonprofit or a charity, I feel like I'd be like, but I want to like, just keep all the money to have that impact. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I would want to monetize like something I'm passionate about, but I would definitely love to like help someone do that and give money to it and stuff like that. It's, it's insane to me to think about because I'm not in that space, but context is everything. I, I know a couple of people who are hoarders. And what, I, and, and what I've also found is my mother, Lise, who you just were speaking to the other day, as she's gotten older, has become a hoarder and she didn't used to be that way. So is that, yeah. is there, we're getting completely off topic here, but is there a parallel between age and hoarding? Yes. So absolutely there is. There's a parallel between age and almost everything because of that compound effect, that slight edge, it, a little bit in the wrong direction year after year after year after year compounds. So something like my dad wasn't a serious hoarder in his thirties, you know, the pro like a little bit of clutter, but it compounds and it absolutely gets worse with age. Um, so that's the type of thing that like as family members of people who are hoarders, it, it puts a lot on you because 
it's you're sort of in charge of it. And even if you don't help them while they're alive, at some point everyone dies and then it's on the family to figure out how to address that situation. Um, but it definitely gets worse with age and a lot of people who are older hoarders weren't hoarders before. And that's why it's more common among like elderly people, but just demographics of hoarding. One of the things about hoarding that's really surprising is for people who are a little bit younger, like middle-aged hoarders, um, they tend to be very high functioning. Like both my parents were very successful lawyers, very smart, very highly educated. They didn't look like you know, their clothes were nice, their teeth were clean, like they, you would never guess how people are living. And, you know, they were likable, they got along with people, but they had, they were going home to this living situation that was very different from some of their higher functioning colleagues. Yeah. I knew someone like that, that I used to work with many years ago back in San Diego. And he, he was actually bipolar, it turned out, which I didn't realize until he got in some trouble at work, but he lived out of his car and he was a hoarder as well. And he had to, if you were to see his car, it was literally just, he had to basically climb in because he had so much stuff in his, and it was just, I don't, I don't think a lot of people made fun of him, but I don't think people realized actually what was going on. This was way before the show came out. Yeah. I think my belief with hoarding and a lot of other things, um, like alcohol abuse, I think a lot of behaviors, there's an underlying root. And then they manifest as different types of dysfunction with food, with alcohol, with stuff. But there's, I believe that there's usually like trauma and stuff and mental health that needs to be resolved underneath it. So it's not just about cleaning the house. You know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get resolved underneath. And that little compound is usually initiated by some sort of a gateway activity, isn't it? Um, what do you mean? So I think uh, when I observe my mom and she didn't used to be a hoarder, but every time I speak to her, she's like, well, I just don't know if I'm going to, if I'm going to need this again. And so she yeah. adds something to it and then she adds something to it. And I noticed that she's starting to get a little, her memory starting to get a little kind of off there. But I don't, mm -hmm. don't want to call it dementia or Alzheimer, but she's definitely in that space now. And so I'm wondering if those little things, those little relics that she just decides to hold on to because she's not quite sure she forgets about, forgets about it, that she even had it. And it sort of becomes the gateway to compounding as you we were talking about earlier. Yeah, definitely. And I think whether people have memory problems or not, if you're not organized and you don't know what you have, people buy duplicates and overbuy, not because they want to have four of one thing, but because they don't know where it is. So that definitely compounds it too. Yeah. Please tell me that your mom will not listen to this podcast. I mean, and she no, might. Evo, Evo's mom. <laughs> Oh, oh no! I was like, my mom's all heard of this. Yeah, <laughs> both of you will not be the favorites anymore. No moms allowed. Well, I, yeah, I didn't really say anything any bad. It's just I'm actually more concerned about it than anything else. All right, Margaret, let's talk about podcasts because I love the idea of podcasts. Before podcasts were cool, I was doing podcasting. I didn't have any success with it in terms of listenership. How does somebody make it in a podcast world? I, I see people who have not necessarily the most scintillating podcast, but I'm they're having 1 million downloads. And I'm like, who's actually listening to that? How does somebody, before we talk about how you got into that space, how does somebody make it or break it? Is there, is it just the process? Is it a little bit of figurative luck? Is it a little bit of both? What's sort of the, the secret sauce around podcasting? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good Tell question. Tell us all the things. <laughs> Well, I mean, you have, so there's different types of successful podcasts. There's like 
Joe Rogan and My Favorite Murder, like shows that were just like people love them um, right away. I mean, those are just like huge shows. And I think that has to do with just the combination. It's like a perfect storm of really good content, a really good host and a big enough audience of people who are into that, um, which I think can be hard to predict. I think it's good to stay true to yourself and what you feel like you want to make rather than trying to make something that will be popular because you'll probably lose some of that authenticity that these shows like that, especially these entertainment shows really have. A lot of them also rest on people who are, if not big names, already in the entertainment industry. Um, and then so people who've had a million downloads. It really depends how you're reporting metrics because a million downloads per episode and a million total downloads in the lifetime of the show tell very different stories. To get a million total downloads, consistency. I mean, if you keep your show going for long enough, you can probably hit that. Um, even if you don't have a gigantic audience or it would definitely, but it would definitely help. Um, but I really think it's, I think it's about good stories, genuinely good content and consistency. I think all the bells and whistles um, just make it too complex. I think people are trying so hard to like get it right and to win, but it's really the person who's the most consistent and genuinely cares about putting out good content and getting better and improving will win, especially when it comes to podcasts that are like those mid-range shows that convert really well and are able to be monetized either in you know your core business or on their own with advertising. Hmm. So with consistency, I'll be podcasting into my 80s in my horde-filled room with all of my <laughs> clutter and we'll come back on again in 20 years and talk about it. Love it. <laughs> So why podcasting? You, you said that you were lost. You were bouncing around from job to job. You became a door-to-door -door vacuum saleswoman. You were doing the things that were no fun, all that stuff. You met a, your current partner. You were in the space well before anybody is doing what you're doing. Again, I, I could be wrong on my data, but I've scoured the internet and trying to find other companies that do what you do. And it seems to me that you've sort of been one of the pioneers in what you're doing. Yes, Why we, did you go into that space and how did you turn out to be a prophet in disguise? Yeah, good question. Yeah, we are the first. We're the first company ever doing this. Um, I thought it was not my idea. It was my business partner who founded the business, her dad's idea, um, because she had her first child. This was in like 2012, 2013. And her dad, luckily for us, is a business coach named Jim Palmer. Is this and, Jessica that you're talking about, your current partner? Yeah. Yep. Her dad is a business coach. So she did not want to work at a nonprofit anymore because she was having a kid. She wanted to work from home. So he was like, all right, well, you can be a virtual assistant and I'll be your first client. And he really saw the opportunity in not just having a podcast, but being a guest on other people's podcasts, which is what we specialize in. He saw that way early. Um, so in 2013, one of the things he was having just do as his virtual assistant was to book him as a guest on other shows. And then as she continued being a VA and realized that that hourly model is pretty unforgiving if you want to scale without working more hours. And so he helped her niche down and create packages and just focus on the podcast booking, which had been one aspect of what she'd been doing. So that's like how this industry 
was founded and she grew the company um, to six figures, multiple six figures with her dad coaching her. She grew a contract, a team of contract bookers all over the world. And then I came on as a contractor in 2016 um, when I was living in Colorado. And at the time, I had only listened to Serial. Like I was not an early adopter of podcasts at all. Um, a, a lot of the people who had gotten really into podcasts were like business people who saw the opportunity. Um, and so I really just wanted to work from home and have freedom. So I wanted to be a contractor. And Jess and I had been connected from working together at Clean Water Action. And then when my dad died, we actually reconnected because she adopted his cat, um, which was great <laughs> in so many ways. And we hadn't really been friends before that. We had gotten along and like worked together. Um, but that's how we reconnected. And then I saw she was hiring remote contractors. And I was like, I would love to work in sweatpants. <laughs> and it was through being a booking agent. And I had my list of clients of these amazing entrepreneurs. And I started listening to their interviews on podcasts because I wanted to get to know them. I wanted to understand their messaging. And I didn't know anything in 2016. Like I remember listening to one of my clients interviews and like Googling, like what does B2B mean? <laughs> Like I, I was working in a B2B business and I like, and I was like, what is content marketing? This was 2016. I'm doing um, that now with some of our guests when they drop. Yeah. Like, that's the beauty of doing it remotely. They can't see me Googling. Exactly. Yeah. No one knew how, how much I was really Googling, but I, I loved it. And I was so inspired by our clients and through listening to their interviews on podcasts, it changed my life because I realized that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's who I was. And that's why I had gotten so bored with all these regular jobs. And so I really believe in the power of podcasts podcasts and of people's interviews on podcasts changing lives because you know from going from being a $15 an hour contractor in 2016 who's googling what is b2b mean to in 2018 owning a seven figure business to now being ceo and it being a multi seven figure growing to eight is is crazy and and that's really the impact of getting out there and sharing your story and talking about your business i love that so why why should entrepreneurs either be on podcasts or have their own podcast? What's what's the benefit? Because we all know there's a lot of work that goes into it. And, you know, there may only be five people listening to you. <laughs> so being a guest... Consistency, Lisa. Consistency. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so our expertise really is people guesting on podcasts. We do host a show. I'm just starting another show, another podcast right now. So we love hosting as well, but we focus on guesting because having your own show is so much work. And being a guest on other people's shows who have already established their audience, they've already done all that work of getting the show off the ground and established is a lot easier than having your own show. So starting as a guest, if you're apprehensive, is a really smart way to do it so that you can get used to it. You can like learn different shows, different formats. You can start getting out in front of audiences right away. Whereas if you start your own show, you do have to build that audience up. Ideally, I think it's great to do both. And most of our clients will guest for a while and then they'll start their own show as well and do both. Um, the benefits of podcasting, I mean, being a podcast guest 
is amazing because of the visibility. So you get a lot of new followers and new clients who listen to you. The relationship building with all the entrepreneurs who host the shows is where our clients see a lot of um, return, not just in terms of actual revenue, but also just in terms of how great it is. They end up partnering with people, you know, referral partnerships, JV partnerships. Sometimes they partner on new businesses and new opportunities with people they met from being on their show. So there's a huge both financial and also just fulfillment wise ROI on being a guest on other people's shows as an entrepreneur. And then starting your own show is really the same thing. I mean, having consistent content the trust is so high when people listen to you on a podcast and that is so valuable especially now when people have really short attention spans they don't really know who to trust everyone is online with facebook ads seeing that they're an expert and you should trust them and when you hear someone tell their story and hear them on a podcast if they resonate with you that you're going to trust them immediately. And having leads come to you who aren't cold because they've heard your story on a podcast and they love you and they feel like they're best friends with you already is just incredibly valuable. You, you mentioned you were starting a new podcast of your own. Is that what I heard you say at the beginning? Yes. Yeah. I have a new show coming out called We Get It, Your Dad Died, where I am interviewing seven-figure and eight-figure entrepreneurs about a significant death or loss in their life. It's I've got a I've got quite a few episodes recorded. I think I'm going to drop it, launch it either next month or the month after, but it's I'm very excited about it. The conversations are like crazy. Do they have to have an intimate relationship with their father or could there be a love-hate relationship going on? <laughs> I know what you're <laughs> Cuz my know dad just died and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so because I know somebody who who fits some of your categories. So Complex grief is welcome. Um, it, it It's not just dads. It's like seven and eight figure entrepreneurs who have lost anyone. So it could be like anyone who was influential to them. So it we've had people talking about business partners, um, children, uh, parents, obviously, siblings. So it, it's been really interesting because they've done a lot of cool research on grief and success and the interesting correlation that they find between people who are really high achieving and people who have experienced an extreme loss. And there's a, a lot of overlap. So part of the reason I wanted to do this show is to explore this. And it's been incredible to see how many of these super high achieving entrepreneurs have this incredible loss that they credit with shaping them um, and creating who they are and the success that they now have. So it's like, it's very, very interesting. What's that common thread? You mentioned there was a correlation between success and, and grief. What's that common thread in a nutshell? So, I mean, a lot of people have done research on this, including Malcolm Gladwell, and people have different theories about what it is because it's a correlation. So they found that like over a third of U.S. presidents lost their father at a young age. Like when you go through the encyclopedia and get together the people whose biographies are, you know, more than one column, um, the majority of them lost a parent at a young age. So there's just all these studies showing that high achievement and extreme loss seem to keep being connected. And I don't know that anyone is really sure on causation on exactly why, 
Um, I believe it has a lot to do with resistance and dissolving your resistance and also like showing you what you're made of, but it's very, it's very interesting and doing basically these case studies of talking to these incredible high achievers about what happened, um, how, what they make it mean, because a lot of success is the things that happen to you, what you make them mean about you and about your life. And what I've done and what everyone I've interviewed so far is has created intentionally created a meaning to make it a positive, to have a positive impact. Like I'm turning my dad's suicide into his legacy where I am out here sharing and having an impact on other people that's positive. That's now his legacy. So I choose to see this as something that's been really, you know, a positive force for the most part in my life and in my success. And that's an intentional story. I love that. I, I love as well, like everything that you said, as far as the benefits of, of podcasting, being on a podcast, hosting a podcast, having these conversations with people that you would generally not have. And Devo and I have talked about it not to you know, talk shit about people, but there's a lot of people in our, in our circle that we come back and we're like, you know, we said we should go hang out with more people, but they're not really saying anything interesting, but we have the most interesting conversations with people that are on our podcast and that being connected to them and what happens after these conversations, these, um, connections that we have that we would never have had otherwise. You talk about the um, importance of storytelling. Can you give us a little bit more of your insight on that and why we should be sharing our stories? Your your new podcast sounds so amazing when you're talking about sharing stories. Thank you so much. And I, I love what you said about the people that you're talking to on, on you know your podcast being so much more interesting than the people you know in real life. And I think that's a big reason why podcasting is so powerful is like, it's just an empty space. Like I think people make it about podcasting, whereas podcasting is really just the space that important conversations can happen in. And it normalizes me meeting you, you know, for the second time, cause we did a pre-call and, and like talking to you about my dad dying and like cleaning up cat pee out of my parents' house. Whereas if, if we met at a networking event, it might be kind of inappropriate for me to launch into that. But podcasting creates a space where that's okay, where we have permission to show up really authentically. And that's, it's just so powerful. And going back to what you said about sharing your story. So I'm really passionate about entrepreneurs sharing their story and the incredible impact that it has. And you don't have to have a business that is a, a nonprofit or on the surface, a mission driven business to be having an incredible impact on other people. And by sharing your story, you give people such a gift to see themselves in you, to see what they've been looking for. If you're, you know, if you provide a service to entrepreneurs and you share your story and they relate to you so much, and then what you help people with is exactly what they're stuck with, it takes them from feeling isolated and stuck to seeing hope, to seeing someone that they relate to. And there's this feeling that I can only describe as like true belonging that washes over you this warmth when you hear someone share their story and you relate to it so much. And that's the gift that you give other people when you're brave enough to get out there and share your story. The, the relatability piece that you just talked about, that's that's been central for our theme for our podcast because one of the things that we've noticed early on in this relationship building that, that really is what our podcast has become for us 
um, not only has it generated business opportunities for us, but the cascade of that and the connections that we've established with people and connect, it's like this, one of those connect the dot matrix Mm -hmm. every single week we get inquired or hit up by somebody wanting to know a little bit more about this or need a little more information on that. And we connect these people. And so for me, the power of being able to do that has been, you actually can't put a price tag on that for me. Well, and you're always preaching it from the rooftops, whether we're doing workshops, we're teaching people, we're um, any of our clients for social media, brand consulting or anything, you know, and even us as photographers too, there's a million in one of us. So what makes us different unless we tell our story? Yeah, definitely. The there's a couple of things that I've heard you talk about in this podcast. You talked a little bit about pushing through, um, setting goals, and, and establishing deadlines. But one of the things I heard you talk about early was the manifestation of, of where you are today, and sort of that giving yourself a goal and a metric and some sort of an achievable ladder to get there. Do you believe in the ideation around self manifestation, and is that part of what your life has become for you? Yes, definitely, and my. <laughs> I, yes, it really works. But also how I look at it has evolved a lot from seeing it in sort of a childish way of like trying to make stuff happen to really my understanding now, which is a lot deeper and I think more true. So when I was in Taiwan in for those two years, my dad had been diagnosed with um AFib, like a heart condition that is pretty common. And his doctor wasn't like, this is a huge deal. It was like, it was sort of minor, his case. So it wasn't a huge deal, but I was really stressed about it, right? Because my biggest fear was one of my parents dying. So I was so anxious about it. And I had like listened to the secret. I had listened to some law of attraction stuff. And I was really trying to like make things happen with law of attraction because I'm a driver. And sometimes that gets in my way when it comes to like manifesting and letting things unfold. So I'm like, I'm going to fix this. So I'm like journaling, like, I am so grateful for my dad's amazing health and happiness. I literally wrote that every day for two years and then he killed himself. So you could say gratitude doesn't work, you know, like, But the problem was that the energy behind it was fear. I was scared that something was going to happen to him. So I was furiously journaling how grateful I was for his health, but I didn't believe it. And what I was actually putting out there was fear. I'm not saying I manifested my dad dying or that you can kill people with law of attraction. I don't believe that. But there was this like I went through this period where I was like, screw gratitude. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. I did this for two years and then my dad killed himself. Like, are you kidding me? But then I really got, and where I'm at now is the big piece I didn't have. I was asking for what I want. Like the desire piece was there aggressively, but what I wasn't doing was allowing it. I was so focused on what I wanted and like getting it and driving that I wasn't focusing on actually being in the receptive mode and being happy and being open and and calm and not like all clenched up. And so now what I do, I focus less on like putting out there what I want because you don't have, you can do that like once and you're okay. And more on just like meditating every day, like being in a receptive mode to actually like receive inspiration and ideas and good things. The whole belief code around it all, right? Right. Yeah. I was listening to um, actually reading a book by Joe Dispenza. Are you familiar with this guy, Dr. Joe Dispenza? 
And, yes. and the whole, yeah, and the whole idea of epigenetics and how you can literally belief into manifestation, what it is you want. And like, there's like a whole cellular deconstruction going on on a genetic level. And it's like, it's blowing my mind away. So um, I'd like to go back to podcasts because I know we're running out of time here. <laughs> interestingly enough, I told you we're going to go down rabbit holes, didn't I? So I love it. we have this podcast and, and and other people are trying to get on this podcast platform. And I've been a guest on a few and Lisa's been a guest on a few others. When you see other people's podcasts and, and sort of your introspective experience now being in it, do you know right off the bat, and I'm not going somewhere with this question about us. I'm genuinely curious when you see a you saw me trying to get the sound together. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're already at, we're already out of the running, Lise. But when you see a, when you see a, you to have a good host, First impressions. So like, when you see a podcast and, and people solicit you and like, hey, I'd like to be a client, etc. Is it a dollar and signs business for you, or do you actively say to like, we looked at your podcast and you've got some work to do, buddy? So the majority of our clients are not hosts. They they want to be guests on shows. Gotcha. So the hosts, podcasts are like our other client, but they don't pay us. We yeah. actually, so we do do booking for shows who want like consistent guests and they don't want to do all that legwork. But the majority of what we do is representing our clients, getting them booked on other people's podcasts. And we don't charge shows that we book our clients on, right? So do we reject clients? Yes, because a client has to be in alignment with who we are as a business and our culture. Um, we only amplify voices that embody integrity, authenticity, and leadership. Um, so if someone's not aligned with that, we will not work with them because we're getting them out there. We're spreading their message. So if it's something that is not in integrity with us, that would not sit well. Um, How do you yeah. vet that? Well, social media makes it really easy <laughs> because you can look at someone's social media and get an idea for that. And then also we only sign people up like over the phone. We don't, you can't like go to our website and sign up anywhere. There is no sign up button. So we also screen people that way to make sure that they're a good fit. They're at the right place in their business. They're an established entrepreneur. They have value to share. They have expertise in the area. They're saying that they have expertise in an experience. And then on the other side, yes, we vet shows. We will not pitch our clients to show that don't pass our vetting. And we have a lot of different things that we look at. We have three full-time employees who all they do is show research all day, every day. They're finding shows and they're vetting shows for the agents to pitch. So yes, there are shows that we won't book on um, because either the sound quality is good, they're not publishing consistently, or sorry, the sound quality is not good, they're not publishing consistently enough. Um, and then a lot of our client's criteria has to do with their personal criteria. So a show could be a great show, but we won't book clients on it who aren't a good fit for the target audience that we know that show has, because that would not get our clients where they want to go in terms of their goal for being a guest. So we have to match up the client's expertise, their goal for podcasting, and then the show and the types of guests that they want and match those two things up so that it's a win-win for both of them. That's very detailed. Thank you. <laughs> wow. So no, I, I'm not being facetious. I love that you have a process. I think a lot of, we, we meet a lot of, when Lisa and I first got started in, in our other business, Sprout, because we were doing, basically giving away our free energy and resources to people, helping them how to grow their Instagram and social media, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And one of the things 
that's how Sprout was born, by the way. That was my shameless plug. Um, one of the things that we've discovered early on working with a lot of entrepreneurs is they don't have a process established. They don't really exactly know what they want to be when they grow up, and nor do they know how their business should should operate. So it's it's uh, I love to hear other entrepreneurs kind of speak to the details on that. Lisa, did you have a question or can I continue or go ahead? You can go ahead, but I just want to say I love how you align things and and don't um... – when we started with Sprout, we did take on a couple of clients that we were just, you know what, there's just bad energy dealing with them. And it's yeah. just not, it doesn't matter what they're bringing to your bank account. It's just not worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if an individual has a limited budget and would you recommend that they spend more of their budget and they want to stay in the podcast realm, whether as a host, as a guest, would you recommend, or is there a, a divisible breakdown, a 60, 40, 80, 20 principle that you would recommend to somebody that has sort of a limited budget in the, between those two spaces, course of actions? So whether I would have them focus their time and their budget on having a show or guesting. Mm -hmm. You said so that way, in way less words than I did. <laughs> no, I get what you mean. Um, <laughs> So words are it, hard to come by. <laughs> you <laughs> try to use them all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, same. I just gave you a very thorough answer to the last <laughs> question. So I answer. think we're on the same page. Um, this is like, dude, just keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, it would really depend on that person. I mean, like, I don't want to be a doctor who diagnoses you without ever, you know, who prescribes you something without diagnosing you or actually looking at what's going on. For the majority of people, I would say 90%, they should focus on guesting. Hmm. Um, the people who should focus on having their own show, I can't, I can't impress this upon you. Well, no, I can't impress it upon you enough. They're both lucrative, but to have a show, you have to want to have a show. It's not enough to want the benefits and the clients or the monetization from the show, you will burn out and quit before you get that. You have to enjoy it. Like if you have an interview show like you guys have, you have to get energy from talking to people. If, if it's a solo show or another type of show, you have to enjoy the creativity of it. And when you enjoy it for its own sake and the creativity, that's when you get magic and you get shows that are really successful because the people actually are in the process and enjoying doing them. If you just have a goal in mind and you're like, I'm going to start a podcast so that I can get 15 new clients from my podcast and you don't enjoy it and it's not creative for you, don't bother. Just guest on other people's shows because it won't be fun for you. Ideally, people should do both. I love that passion over pursuit. And, yeah. and we genuinely love, uh, again, we don't have a massive audience, but we genuinely love podcasting. And it's, the, mm -hmm. the, it's not even the podcasting. It's just what you just said. I'm a people person, which is one of the reasons this damn COVID has had such an impact on me mm. is I like seeing people's faces and engaging with them and learning about them and all the brilliant things that they bring to the world. So um, for me, this has been a fantastic platform for Lisa and I to sort of spread our seed, if you will. Yeah. And that's, you guys are doing it exactly right. Like if you stay consistent and focus on enjoying it and having great conversations, you end up monetizing it in ways that you probably wouldn't have even thought of. It's just like kind of magic. So until we get better friends that have more meaningful conversations, we'll keep doing this is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I think the conversations on your show are great, but I know what you mean about like real life friends. I, I am very picky now. I, there's like no, I mean, now I won't hang out with anyone 
because of quarantine. But it's been nice because I can really look at like, who do I really want to keep in my life? Like who's a positive press presence and who do I love as a person? But every time I talk to them, I feel terrible because they're so negative and I'm not going to going to do that anymore. I love that. Same. Okay. So real quickly in a nutshell, you tell me a little bit about your process. If, if I, a fictitious me wanted to hire you and your process, take us through that again a little bit. Yes. So, um, and as we said before, we have over now over 25 full-time employees. Our team is local in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. So it's not, they're not like people all over the world wrote like pretty cohesive. We used to be in an office until COVID. Um, but we have an amazing team and I brag about our team all the time, but they're like really the best people. Hosts and all our clients tell us all the time, like, where did you find these people? They're so cool. So when you work with us, our team does discovery work with you. So they spend a month really getting into like your messaging. What are your goals for podcasts? Like what do those goals actually look like? Do you want more clients? Like how many more clients? Do you want speaking opportunities? Like, you know, how are we finding those? Like, who are we targeting? Who's your target audience? Um, really getting clear on that criteria, that objective criteria. We also make you a one sheet, which has your suggested topics and questions and bio, and we help you formulate all that. Um, and then after that discovery work is done, and we're really confident that we understand exactly what shows you need to be on to accomplish your goals. And we know exactly what your goals are and what success looks like for you with the strategy. Then um, your agent who you have a personal agent who works with you will start booking you on shows. And we book our clients on four shows per month, every month for a year. Um, we work with people annually and this is by design um, because if you really want success with podcasting, you have to be really consistent. If you just do an interview here or there, or just do like one or two per month, it takes such a long time to build momentum that people usually quit and they say like, oh, it doesn't work. But when you do four per month every month and you commit to the strategy for a year, you build up a big enough snowball that you just start seeing all these results and all this ROI. So I personally am on four to eight shows every month as well, because not only do we you know, sell the strategy, but we use it and we used it to grow from zero to seven figures with no paid ads. That's fantastic. All right. So people can find you on interviewconnections.com. You're also on the same handle on, on all your social media channels. Is that correct? Yes. And the best place um, to hang out with us is our free Facebook community at interviewconnections.com slash group. Jess and I are in there all the time we do trainings on how you can get started, how you can monetize your interviews and all that good stuff. And okay. when does your new podcast come out? My new podcast, I don't have an official date. It's either going to be March or April. Um, whenever I get enough episodes that I feel, feel secure that I can release it and stay consistent with every other week because I want to make sure I take my own advice and I make it really consistent. <laughs> Do you produce the podcast in-house, the post-production? Um, we have, so actually my fiance is a sound edi editor. So she edits all our company podcasts um, and she does an amazing job. So she does that for us in-house. Yeah. That's great. Margaret, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us. Lisa, you have anything you want to? No, I just, all your insight and your energy behind all of this is so in tune. <laughs> Before you leave us, we, we always ask everybody one question. So if you had a, your sort of your superpower and you, you were going to leave the world today 
and you have one gift that you wanted to leave the planet. What is that? I think it's changed so many times, but I think what my superpower is, is really being to look at, being willing to look at myself honestly, um, positives and negatives. That introspective ability. Mm -hmm. It's been great. All right, Margie, thank you for your time. I enjoyed chatting thank you. with you. Thank you both so much. This is awesome. Right, have a great day. Bye. You too.